Yes, how about that? Now, there's a big display in the resort plaza. Be sure and check it out. Of course, you, <laughs> you can't win any of these fabulous prizes if you don't have what? A raffle ticket. So as a special for today, now that's today only. With each raffle ticket that you buy for $2, we are going to give you a free lift pass, good for one day ski. Wait a minute. Uh, the cost of the lift tickets was supposed to be a part of the room fee. Yeah. Welcome to Park City, Utah, where the sheriff's department can't make payroll and the resort owner gets rich quick by selling $2 raffle tickets to broke high school students. We're still up all night, and this episode, we watched Snowballing. Hello, everybody, and welcome to USA Up All Night with me, Aranda. Hi, I'm Gilbert Godfrey, the comedian in the cupboard for USA Up All Night. In this movie, you'll see two of your favorite stars. Now, if you drink enough beer, you'll start seeing more of your favorite stars. Stay with me on USA Up All Night. Welcome to Still Up All Night, the only podcast that celebrates the films of USA's Up All Night series. I'm Travis Yates, joined by my co-host and hopefully A-plus student this week, Rob Katie. Rob, how are you and did you finish your homework for this episode? I am very well, and, and first order of business is happy birthday, Travis. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, we happen to be recording in the Still Up All Night studios on my birthday, so happy 21st to me, we'll say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, thank you. All right, so, Rob, you might remember that last episode we covered 1989's Hot Times at Montclair High, directed by Jose Altanaga, who, after a three-decade hiatus from directing, came back with the 2020 horror film Reawakened. And Rob, since horror is your jam, I gave you some homework last week to go watch Reawakened and then come back and report to the class. You did just that, so what can you tell us about Jose Altanaga's Reawakened? Oh boy, um, it's not good. Let's let's start there. <laughs> it, uh, you know, he he bears the brunt of the responsibility for this, as he is is one of the writers, you know, the director, and and I think is involved uh, his studio developed the film uh so his name is all over the place on this and and i will say uh it is heavily hampered by an incredibly low budget um but even you know taking that into account it's just bad the the script is bad the the acting is is middling um which was sort of surprising because there are a number of people that have have done you know quite a few things on on tv and um, nobody that I recognized or, or knew, but, um, you know, they, they all have careers to a degree. Um, but yeah, the, the digital effects were heavily relied upon and it looked like something, you know, someone could do, uh, without ever having done it before. Like for instance, there is, <laughs> I think that maybe the first recorded instance of digital barf, um, as a character reacts to a, a grisly murder scene. And uh, yeah, it's just, it was, I laughed out loud at, the, at that scene. But but the movie centers on a group of friends that go on a camping trip and uh, discover an abandoned house uh, with, you know, a room with some occult symbols. And one of the girls finds a necklace and puts it on only to then become possessed by a witch that was, 
brutally tortured and murdered during the Salem witch trials. And she systematically begins to murder the other, uh, you know, I guess they're, I think they're college age or, or high school age. It's never really clear. Starts, But she starts to murder everyone. <clears throat> and, it, and it cuts between the lone survivor from that camping trip, her at the hospital giving uh, her statement to the police while recounting these murders. And then, you know, the... the uh, the clock catches up where she finishes her statement and then the, the murdering witch reappears and begins to murder more. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really bad. Um, the digital bar. Montclair, yeah. Whew. Yeah. And there were, I, it's just odd because she does most of her murdering with a knife, but then sometimes will break out magic and murder people. Uh, and, obviously I think it's a, a budget issue when they <laughs> decided to do that or not. She only did it a couple times, but so much of it is, is laughable. Like the, just the scene when they first find the house, um, someone comments, Oh, there's a building over there. And then someone breaks out binoculars and it looks like it's someone with binoculars looking across the street, basically <laughs> at, at this house. And he goes, yeah, it's a house looks abandoned. And, in no way does it look abandoned. You know, it looks like you're literally looking across the street at someone's house. <laughs> yeah, what happened to the good old days when actors would take some Ipecac and you know, yeah, curl for real. <laughs> let's let's get the practical effects back in back in play. Um, all right, so so not good, but uh, hey, you know, to to come back after what thirty years and uh, and and direct a feature film. Good for Jose Altanaga for uh, for getting back out there. So. No, absolutely. All credit to that, to, to having it done, and, and but um, don't don't waste your time with it. Yeah, I, you know, I referenced before on the show. I've, I've made a few bad short films myself, and it's an arduous task. So um, you know, to to do it on the feature level, I, I applaud him uh, for that. And he had a vision, and he did did what he could with what the money he had. So there you go. That is true. All right. Well, nice job on the homework, Rob. You do get an A plus today. So. All right. Uh, also, Rob, a bit of Rhonda news. Not breaking news, but a fun tidbit. So I introduced my son to Spaceballs last month, which was which was a fun experience in itself. And we're watching the credits, and whose name appears as woman in diner but the one and only Rhonda Shear. And on February 11th, uh, Rhonda tweeted a screenshot of her in the film on her Throwback Thursday uh, tweets. And so impeccable timing from Rhonda there. Uh, Rob, I didn't catch her in the many times that I've watched Spaceballs before. Do you remember her being in that movie? I, I don't at all. And you, you know, after it happened, you you brought it up, and I, you know, described in the movie, and I know the exact scene you're talking about where it occurs, and I don't remember her at all. Yeah, it. it I, I we got to go back and, and watch it because it's it's probably just a quick pan as she's sitting there um, in the diner. But yeah, good good stuff there. So Rhonda Shear and Spaceballs, <laughs> something learn something new every 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 year. Um, all right, so on to this episode's movie in honor of the ridiculous polar vortex that just like blanketed nearly three fourths of the country in snow. Uh, it's 1984's Snowballing. Uh, Rob, are you familiar with snowballing when we chose this as as this episode's film? 
I know it's com- another completely new one for me. I, d- I don't even like the uh, the poster and the you know the VHS cover images. None of that looks familiar to me. You know, it's not even one of the ones that you know you would see and recognize and think, oh, someday I got to watch that. It, yeah, never even on my radar. Yeah, likewise. So um, let's dig into it and see if maybe we had just forgotten it or if it is that obscure. So Snowballing was distributed by Com World Pictures, which released slasher and sex comedy movies between 1980 and 1986. The most notable title that I saw from Com World Pictures was BMX Bandits, starring, of course, Nicole oh, yeah. Kidman. Yeah, um, yep. Snowballing was directed by Charles Sellier Jr., who has three other films on his directing resume. Um, the most well-known is the cult classic slasher flick Silent Night, Deadly Night. So fun. Well, fact. that seems to be um, sorry to interrupt. A sort no. of a theme with a number of the <clears throat> um, actors in the movie as well they all have at least another you know sort of 80s horror slasher or or creature feature um uh, credited to them yes many of which were in silent night deadly night which came out just before snowballing so they uh sellier liked uh, (laughs) who he had here and stuck with him for snowballing he would go on to have a, a lengthy career as a producer with 69 credits to his name spanning from 1973 to 2008. So it seems like directing was just a brief stop on his lengthy Hollywood career. He produced a lot of late 80s and early 90s made-for-TV movies, including a series of Desperado movies and 1991's Night Rider 2000. So that's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, claim to fame there for sure. Uh, Snowballing did not receive a theatrical release, but rather it went straight to video, which was a sign of the times as producers were cashing in on the early 80s video store craze sweeping the nation. Uh, A quick shout out to the VHS Files podcast. They weighed in on our question on which was better, the big chain video stores like Blockbuster or the mom and pop shops. Rob, real quick sidebar here. Which did you prefer growing up, the smaller shops or the bigger Blockbuster and Hollywood video chains? I I don't remember really having much of a choice. I, you know, we got it seems like we got a blockbuster pretty early on and I, I remember a small shop that I used to be able to walk to and um you know in that case was able to uh rent a few things I probably shouldn't have <laughs> because I was able to just walk over and rent things uh but they you know once that blockbuster rolled in you know, they vanished almost immediately. Uh, so I do have some fond memories from that one small shop, but, but you know, Blockbuster for, you know, the next however many years was our, our only option. So, you know, I you know, became a fan. Yeah, I grew up in suburban Chicago where it seemed like you could not stand on any one intersection corner and throw a stone and not hit a mom-and-pop video store. So I loved them. I'd visit more than one per day sometimes. And uh, (laughs) I I loved the smaller shops also because you could find more obscure titles like Snowballing, for example, or the Troma Entertainment films of the era. You know, Troma founder Lloyd Kaufman has been vocal about how hard it was to get his titles into the bigger chains. So, you know, I never would have found the Toxic Avenger if it weren't for my local mom-and-pop video stores. So kudos to them. And Trauma, don't worry. We will feature you heavily, I'm sure, uh, on Still Up All Night very soon. Uh, yeah, we, we won't have a choice at some point. They've got so many uh, movies on the 
the docket. Yeah, it's almost like the anticipation is, you know, I want to hold off. I want to wait a little longer until we get to the Toxic Avenger because just what a film to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Breakdown. So we'll get there, Lloyd. We're coming. Uh, okay, back to snowballing. It premiered on USA Up All Night on Friday, June 7th, 1991, as the second of USA Up All Night's triple header of movies. It would air the very next night on Saturday, June 8th, as the first of the three movies, and it would appear five more times for a total of seven appearances, the final being March 12th, 1993, where it was relegated to the third movie, you know, the one that airs without cut-ins from Rhonda or Gilbert, or the depressing slot, as I like to call it, because it means that the USA Up All Night fun is done for the evening. Um, One of the covers, video covers for this is great, Rob. It claims... What Porky's did for teenage life, what Meatballs did for summer camp, what my tutor did for school, snowballing does for skiing. So pretty braggadocious in its claims that never really comes to fruition as I don't ever hear anybody referencing snowballing, you know, skiing or otherwise. Have you? Yeah, certainly not in in the you know the same breath as Porky's or Meatballs. Um, <clears throat> and I, I found it interesting too that the you know that that cover and uh, the DVD cover, even and the uh, the other poster they show, I, I believe paint a, a slightly different movie than we actually get. But uh, you know we'll get into that. <laughs> we absolutely will, definitely. Uh, interesting covers, and we'll talk about those. So top billing in the film goes to Alan Sues, who plays goofy school chaperone Roy Balabone. Um, Suze was a jack-of-all-trades entertainer, first a stand-up comedian and a regular performer on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In TV series. He did some stage work opposite Leonard Nimoy in Sherlock Holmes, and he did a number of films and TV appearances through the years. So very eclectic career for Alan Suze. Uh, Mary Beth McDonough plays Karen Reed. She's probably best known as Aaron Walton from the Waltons uh, TV series. Uh, she would make a number of TV series and made-for-TV movies in the 90s and 2000s as well. Kind of a, a staple for our stars of these films. Um, Rob, there's just no real notable cast here. Uh, Bill Zuckert plays Sheriff Gillum. He's a veteran TV character actor. And when I say veteran, I mean dating back to the early days of TV in the 1950s, starting with 1950 and the newspaper journalist drama I Cover Times Square all the way to 1996 in his final acting role in an episode of Diagnosis Murder at age 80, just one year before his death in 1997. So an impressive career for our sheriff in this film that spanned 46 years. Uh, but uh, you know, no one that ever reached leading role status in this film. Did anyone in the cast stand out to you, Rob? Um, Alan Sues did, as you know, Roy Balaban, as you said. Immediately, I... I recognized him and I, I couldn't place if it was laughing or, or hee-haw or one of those but I knew and then as soon as I clicked on his IMDB I was like oh it was laughing I recognized him from that um yeah Bill Zuckert as you said he was one of those oh that guy but I, again I couldn't name another movie he was in I, I did find it interesting though in in sort of cycling through the IMDB stuff is that the Bonnie Hellman who played Bonnie is still going today, you know, to have sort of the role she had in this movie and yet, you know, outlast everyone else <laughs> in, in, a, in her movie career, um, you know, and, and pop up on stuff, you know, recent, like Two Broke Girls and, um, 
yeah, so I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk uh, about Bonnie coming up, but that that is yeah, she did. And of the younger stars, really, uh, you know, like I said, no one ever made it to leading role status or even close yeah. to leading role status. So. Um, but and not even really outside of a few of those Sue's and Zucker, not even the you know any of that guy and that girl. Just not, yeah, yeah, not at all. Just not that recognizable. All right, so let's talk about the movie. And what strikes me about the opening is that it's the worst matched unironic music to video <laughs> possibly in cinema history. So we get this like upbeat, energetic, you know, classic '80s opening tune. But the visual is just a long take of, uh, you know, snow-covered, flat landscape, almost whiteout conditions, and a tour bus slowly approaching and then passing the camera. I mean, it was so odd and so jarring because it was so out of place. And again, like I said, not done in an unironic way. You know, why not some cool shots of skiers flying down a ski slope, you know, teens throwing snowballs at each other, attractive people in the hot tub anything you know, to, you know to sort of set up the the movie to come you know as opposed to just this hmm here's snowy fields yeah, yeah just a bus slow moving bus in a washed out landscape just passing by so you know i hate to judge a film based on the opening shot but whoo this one was a doozy <laughs> as ned ryerson might say shout out to the beloved stephen tobolowski there um, okay, so the bus belongs to Oregon's Monroe High School. It finally arrives at this uh, Park City Ski Resort, and it's not clear why they're here yet. There's a ski competition referenced early, but then one of the students says he needs to take ski lessons, so it's, it's, it's still not quite clear what's going on. Mr. Balabone, uh, Alan Sues, gets off the bus, and he's immediately shoved around by the kids. They throw snowballs at him, so like just really forced comedy that to me that I feel didn't come off as comedy as well. What did you think about uh, Mr. Balaban's introduction here? Well, it's, I think, sort of a a theme throughout the entire movie. It's, it's, you know, it was like he was back in an episode of Laugh-In where, you know, it was how how high he can take everything, you know, how much he can overact every scene and, and bring it to 11 and <laughs> I mean I, I did find myself you know uh, chuckling every so often and I did find him endearing enough but uh, yeah it was was sort of a definitely a the goofiest element of the film yeah uh, there's a little foreshadowing when Sheriff Gillum tells one of his deputies to hurry back to the resort to write some tickets because they have payroll to make now, this movie was filmed in Park City, Utah. It even says, you know, on the big banner that identifies Park City Resort when the bus rolls up. Park City is a suburb of Salt Lake City, known for its luxurious ski resorts. I mean, the area hosted the 2002 Winter Olympics, for crying out loud. So the notion that the sheriff's department needs to make payroll by writing unwarranted tickets is a stretch. But hey, it's the 80s, so, you know, there, there you go. Um, so we follow two groups here. We've got a pair of girls, uh, the attractive Cheryl, played by Jill Carroll, and Bonnie, that you mentioned earlier, played by Bonnie Hellman. Um, I I don't know about you, Rob, but I loved Bonnie from the get-go. Bonnie's, you know, she's short, he- uh, overweight. You know, Cheryl immediately drew- draws the attention of the resort hunk, Greg, who we find out is also a, you know, 
ace skier uh, and uh, you know her friend Bonnie was just totally ignored to which Bonnie replies she's the tall one people get us confused sometimes <laughs> I mean I, I got a real kind of Melissa McCarthy vibe from her por- performance in this movie what would you what you think when we first met Bonnie yeah she's definitely uh, at least for me the the comedy highlight of the movie um, it, it was you know, as expected for the, the time period, you know, a lot of the humor, unfortunately, revolves around her being, you know, heavy set and loving those, you know, snacks. But uh, but I did like some of the other you know, directions they they took with her comedy and and yeah, very likable character and um, sort of had had some nice moments throughout the movie. Yeah, it's weird because everybody's so kind of goofy in this movie. She almost plays the straight man character, but yet she's the comic (laughs) relief. So it's like, well, uh, yeah, so an interesting role for for her. Um, All right, so the other group we follow are three guys, Andy, Dan, and Al. So first, Rob, did you recognize Al? No. Okay, so he's... He's played by Stephen Tash, and his claim to fame is the blink and you miss him. He's the male student in Ghostbusters in the scene with the good-looking blonde, where Peter Venkman is doing the, the like shock, you know, ESP testing in the beginning wow. of the movie. And even though the girl is continuously wrong, Venkman keeps saying she's right and shocks the male. <laughs> That's Stephen Tash. <laughs> I do remember the scene. Yeah. But I, I... I get no face attached with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's established early here in the film that Al considers himself a womanizer. He's got a, a list of just awful one-liners written down that he plans on using over the weekend. He calls himself Gigantor as a nickname, so, you know, a real class act there. <laughs> um, what did you think of our, our group here? It took a while to... Th- their introduction and who they are and why... I mean... Dan is there. It's part of the skiing competition. He ends up in the finals, but we don't know this until much later on. I mean, there was. I, it was hard to kind of put all the players together early on. Yeah, I, and I couldn't figure out quite who was. You know, I sort of made the assumption that they were going to focus mostly on Dan because he had a thing for Cheryl, and they, you know, she was the, you know, as you said, the second sort of team that we follow. But then it focuses a little bit more on Andy throughout, and and I want to say too that I think I don't know when it was, but it was at least 10, 15 minutes in the movie before I even figured out what their three names were. Yeah, like I, I don't yeah. think all their names are dropped until like 10, 15 minutes in. Yeah, some um, some screenwriting issues early on in the film too. When I was trying to establish who was who, they had um, they had Al called Dan Bud. Because he he had to carry all the bags from the bus, yeah, uh, yeah. or or no, actually it was Andy, and so he. But he said, "Hey, bud, that's," and I'm like, and I had to rewind it to be like, "Wait, did did he say his name or did nope, he didn't." So we still didn't know his name at that, at that point. Um, so Al has the guys convinced that all women find skiing irresistible, and they're in for just a sex-filled weekend. Um, when who shows up at the resort condo in their room but the science teacher and chaperone and goofy all-around goofy guy mr balaban so mr balaban is the equivalent of the classic 80s high school nerd you know bow tie very effeminate but it's worse here because he's an adult and he's just oblivious to how nerdy his behavior is now you said it was you, you found it kind of endearing uh, I found it the opposite way, and I think not not necessarily because he was his performance was was turned up to eleven, but I I felt like it was just out of place in this film. Oh, it completely was for 
you know, it was almost as though they they did this because of who ended up being cast in that role. It was, you know, it feels very much like they may have catered to his strengths, <laughs> which were this over the top flamboyancy um, and goofiness that, like, I just. I mean, I get what they were going for in inserting a teacher into their room. You know, there derails the holes. You know, we're we're here to to hook up, and and now we've got this extra hurdle to get through. But, but yeah, as you said, to sort of the just the way it all worked out was just odd and not what I expected. It was just a, a weird decision for a movie of this nature to have him be such a sort of comedic focal point. Yeah. Yeah, and Rob, did you notice the hilariously bad sound design when Balaban sees a clarinet in the room, uh, oh, yeah. in, in the guy's room, and says, oh, I haven't played one of these since I was in the high school band, and then he picks it up and starts playing Mary Had a Little Lamb? The, the sound is clearly from an electric keyboard mimicking the clarinet sound. <laughs> it's so bad. And then also, just, ew, uh, picking up someone's instrument and then blowing into it, that's like incredibly gross and unsanitary. And keep in mind, this is the science teacher who's doing it. So, um, you know, this would have been better served, I think, having the school nerd show up uh, and bunking with them rather than the school chaperone. I think that, that would have been a better overall fit. But or, or just sort of reduce his role to, to not as much as he had, you know, have him be more of a, a background figure that, <clears throat> you know, isn't, you know, a focal point of so many scenes, you know, cause he ends up basically off on his own, the, in, the entire movie and just ridiculous thing after ridiculous thing happens to him. So he's almost like a, a, a completely separate story from everything else that's going on. Whereas he could have been sort of just a, a, a bit player in all this that was just in, in the background in their room, you know, sort of flubbing up there. Yeah. And <laughs> those chances. That, yeah. That's perfect because yeah, he's introduced as this, you know, obstacle who's going to prevent the boys from from all these hookups but then they never hook up so it's never <laughs> that never becomes an issue at all so uh but the guys hatch a plan to get rid of uh mr balaban anyway they lock him out on the balcony and then they head down to the reservation desk to see if they can get him another room uh, i'm not sure why that plan needed to involve locking the school chaperone out on a balcony <laughs> but hey it's supposed to be a wacky ski trip so shenanigans right uh, so while at the desk, Andy hits it off with Karen, the reservation clerk, and this is uh, Mary Beth McDonough, a.k.a. Aaron Walton, that we referenced earlier. So also down in the lobby, uh, the head of the resort, Mr. Tolson, is selling raffle tickets to the kids for $2 that includes a free lift pass, even though lift passes were supposed to be included in the school's resort package. Um and I love that when the guys meet back up in the lobby, you know, they lay out the obstacles of the movie and it's, you know, one, the resort computer put four people in every room instead of three and two, they have to buy raffle tickets to get a lift pass and three, there's a 42 year old science teacher in the room that's preventing them from getting any action. So, <laughs> oh boy, Rob, we're 20 minutes into this film and I'm already counting down the minutes till it's over. <laughs> This 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 oh, raffle thing would would come into play a little later, but it's like so just nonchalantly introduced that maybe because it's such a nonchalant scam. But we'll get into that too as, as well. So okay, Mr. Balaban eventually falls off the balcony like the goof that he is, 
And the gag continues now. Uh, says snow falls on him every time somebody opens and shuts the front door of the building he's standing in front of. So, yeah, you you said it seems out of place uh, as its own story. And this is like 1920s Max Senate Keystone Cops slapstick <laughs> yes. comedy that just feels so out of place in a 1980s teen comedy. Yeah, and that's exactly what I mean, where I just don't understand the the role itself. Like, was it written that way? Like, bringing some goofy character actor to, to have this whole side goofiness plot? Or did he end up getting the role and they were like, well... Man, he's got this this laughing background. We got to use that. Good question. Yeah, that that's maybe that's what happened and how it went so far off the rails. But uh, uh, surprise, surprise, Rob. Mister Tolson has a very public outdoor conversation for some reason with Sheriff Gillum, uh, <laughs> and they they explain point blank to the audience that they've been rigging the raffle for three years, that the sheriff's in on it and gets a cut. And it's never made clear why they're having this conversation now, except to let the audience know that the raffle is rigged and the sheriff is in on it. So, yes. so much for subtlety and implicit messaging and screenwriting. Uh, what did you make of this scene that was like, you know, screaming at the audience of, hey, here's what's happening? Well, I mean, they got to convey it somehow. And what better way than, you know, direct exposition, just flat out, you almost like break the fourth wall and just tell us and then. Then it's out of the way and you can move on. Right. I'm surprised that, you know, Tolson didn't turn to the camera and say, did everybody get that? Yeah, wink. Yeah, yeah. So Andy gets himself into a predicament in a sequence that I did find really funny. He's taking ski lessons on the bunny slope with a bunch of little kids. He loses control and he runs into a cute blonde. And she asks what he's doing hanging out with all the little rugrats. And he panics and he tells her that he's a ski instructor. And um, she asks if they can meet later so he can give her some tips. And when they do, it's on one of the more difficult slopes of the resort. And as they're riding up the ski lift, um, the the girl, Allison, is her name. She says, uh, oh, the view is so beautiful up here. And as Andy's looking down, he just sees skier after skier wiping <laughs> out on the slope that they're heading up to. And then when they get off the ski lift, like she just hops right off and he wipes out. Uh, as he tries to get off the lift. And Rob, I, I remember being on my, an eighth grade ski trip and it was the first time I ever skied. And that was me trying to get off the ski lift. I was I could really relate to Andy at that moment. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, the signs there were saying tips up, but if you've never done it before, there, there's definitely an art to getting off the lift. And uh, yeah, same here. My first ski trip was, yeah, I, every single time throughout the day I tried getting off, I either <clears throat> ate it immediately or you know, had to be stopped by someone because I just took off. You were Andy, just roll, flying away uncontrollably. Uh, th that was probably the most verisimilitude of this film was the fact that, you know, poor Andy on skis. Uh, in fact, it was so funny because Andy's supposed to be this now, you know, ski instructor, but he's watching Allison and copying everything she she would do. Like, you know, she taps her her boots with her ski poles to get the snow off and then he taps his and then she puts her feet in the skis well, I, and he puts his in gotta give him credit for the quick thinking of telling her to to head down the mountain first so he could observe her technique 
Yes. While he tries to hightail it out of there <laughs> and find another way down the mountain. Yeah, he goes and, and, and looks then. She goes down the hill first. He goes and looks for the ski lift going down, but he loses control just like you did. Um, he goes flying down the slope in you know complete to a song that for some reason just seems straight out of Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> Uh, Andy just destroys the whole slope. I mean, he's knocking over ski stands. He's running over medics trying to, you know, rescue an injured skier on the hill. He's leaving tree limbs on the slope for other skiers to trip over. Kudos to the stunt double that had to look like a complete novice skier, just the legs flying all over the place, legs splayed out while flying down a hill without wiping out. Uh, there was some fun camera work in this sequence. What did you think of uh <laughs> Andy's trip down the down the slope here. Well, yeah, as as you said, it, it did make me chuckle. But I, I, a lot of the chuckling was because he was managing to pull off some of these moves where you know he almost does like a limbo under some people while still managing to stay up on his skis and uh, just stuff like that. I mean, understanding that that's the sequence they have to do to make it work. But uh, no novice skier is going to pull off half half those moves. Uh, to get down the mountain, but uh, yeah, it was fun. It was it, I thought a little bit longer than it needed to be, but it was it was a fun sequence. Yeah, it was rather lengthy, and they kept using the same audio of Andy screaming. So yeah, yeah, they, yeah it was almost it became a Wilhelm scream because it was just like every you know sixty <laughs> seconds they would reinsert him screaming, and it was the same scream. So that was pretty funny. Uh, the gag finally ends when Andy makes it to the bottom of the hill in one piece and Allison tells him, you're a wild man. I'm going back to my boyfriend. He's got no guts, but at least he's not crazy. And then he, so all that for nothing. And just when it looks like his, his luck has run out, Karen from the front desk shows up and Andy learns that she doesn't ski either. So boom, there's a love connection right away between the two. Yes. So while Andy's connecting with Karen, Dan is heartbroken. As you mentioned, uh, the girl he's pining for, Cheryl, uh, is still with the resort hunk, Greg. And, you know, at this point, Cheryl is, to me, Rob, a t just a terrible person. So <laughs> she, she brings Bonnie everywhere with her and then just totally ditches her for Greg. They went skiing, and Cheryl ditched her for Greg. They go to the club. And Cheryl spends the whole night dancing with Greg while ba Bonnie sits alone at the table. She, Bonnie even says at some point, I'm exhausted from watching these purses. So Again, credit to Bonnie for, for pointing it out every time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then finally, at the 44-minute mark, a reminder that, oh, yeah, there's a high school ski competition happening. I mean, really, the only skiing we've seen so far is Andy in a, in a comedy sequence, you know, flailing down this hill. So, you know, nothing says high stakes like burying the race until almost halfway <laughs> through the movie. Uh, I don't even think it was introduced that, oh, by the way, Cheryl is also competing in the race at this point. So, you know, you've got Dan who's been pining after Cheryl. They're both these championship high school skiers, but yet we don't we didn't even know we don't still know. no reference yeah. that dan was in the competition and up until this point rob do you remember a reference that cheryl was racing in the competition no it wasn't referenced and at, at, you know again at this point i'm i'm wondering well other than andy are they all in the competition or yeah i had no idea who was who wasn't what really the the relevance of the competition was any of that yeah it's certainly just sort of a, a, a background plot devo device um that has 
you know, could have been interchanged with anything. Yeah, so we learned that Dan is also racing, and he's he's kind of one of the main characters of the, you know, we've got Andy and Dan uh, and Al that we've been following around. And, you know, not only are they racing, but both Dan and Cheryl had the fastest time of the day in their heats. Is it a heat? I'm not, I don't know why ski competition terminology, but whatever they're, uh, we, we hear the PA announcers say, oh, it's going to be tough to beat those times. So, uh, as soon as Dan finishes his amazing run, he asks where Cheryl is, but Cheryl being Cheryl already ran off with Greg the Honk before Dan's race is over. Have I mentioned, Rob, how much I dislike Cheryl? <laughs> you have once yeah. or twice okay. so far. <laughs> um, so Sheriff Gillum gives the winning raffle ticket to this crazy lady who's just been wandering around the ski resort the whole time. She's kind of a homeless gal. And it occurred to me that... Um, you know, none of the students have been put out by the raffle besides, you know, shelling out $2 each or $4 if you want to buy two <laughs> tickets. Like, I guess the screenwriter realized this too at this point because the very next scene, we found out that Karen talked to Mr. Tolson about some accounting errors that she found and he fired her. So she and Andy, Karen and Andy, put it all together that Mr. Tolson has been price gouging the students for three years. And Karen and Bonnie and Andy and Dan and Al, they all confront Mr. Tolson, who you know denies it all and tells the kids that you know he won't take such foolishness from teenage hooligans. So finally, we've got the uh, you know the evil resort owner versus the kids after just a lot of not even exposition, kind of just meandering at this point. Um, so things turn a little dark when Tolson approaches a woman in the lobby. A prostitute named Colleen who complains that business is bad because the teenage boys can't afford her. <laughs> as you had mentioned earlier, like the though the uh, movie poster and video box might imply that there's going to be this is a teen sex comedy, it's really not. There's been there's been yeah. no nudity uh, to this point, and there won't be at any point. Uh, so well, I, even the the. Uh, scantily clad components that we do get occur in what is it two different dream sequences and and then you know obviously there's a little bit with the prostitute but you know these are people in in bikinis or you know a little bit of lingerie so it's yeah it's very much on the the you know out of on the one to ten scale of teen sex comedy it's it's about at a one yeah right and that's why I feel like it turns dark by introducing the prostitute that can't get teenage boys to pay for her because it just seemed now that seems out of place in this movie that's, you know, a it turned into just a teen comedy instead of a teen sex comedy. Uh, so Tolson sends Colleen up to the boys' room and then calls the sheriff. So the classic setup here, but his plan is foiled when Colleen finds and molests Mr. Balaban instead. <laughs> Of course. Uh, of course. Uh, just as a deputy enters the room and takes Balaban away. Uh, the boys overhear Tolson and the sheriff then talking about the foiled plan. Uh, and then finally, Rob, at one hour and eight minutes with less than a half hour to go, you know, like I said, we're really getting to the to the meat of the teens versus the greedy resort and dirty sheriff battle that we were promised in the plot summary. And, you know, Bonnie's talking about personally nailing their gonads to the wall. Bonnie's fired up, and finally, so am I. Uh, don't you think that this should have been introduced about 40 minutes ago? Yeah, way, way sooner. <clears throat> it, 
the just a lot of strange decisions in this movie in, in terms of uh, the, the entire setup of it. So everything speeds up from this point on. Uh, Cheryl finally sees through Greg's crap and calls him out on it. Uh, Greg and Dan are paired against each other in the finals of the ski competition. Uh, but before the competition, Greg removes a danger sign on the slopes, leaving Dan to go flying off over a cliff and injuring his knee. And meanwhile, Andy talks to the crazy lady lady with the winning ticket and pieces together how the raffle is rigged. And this, this happens in a sequence that's like less than seven minutes long. So, again, had we, you know, introduced that that conflict earlier, we would have been able to stretch all this out, which is really the, the good stuff, uh, if there is good stuff in this oh, Well, film. I mean, they, they had to keep cutting to those odd Balaban segments. Like, I mean, the whole... You know, he ends up buying the Indiana Jones outfit and then gets chased for <clears throat> five minutes by a giant snowman snowball. You know, just all these side sequences delaying, you know, the real plot just to, to highlight his goofiness. Yeah. Uh, and, and it messes with the pacing, uh, what yeah. little pacing there might be in the movie. Um, so Cheryl wins the women's uh, finals race and immediately skis past everybody who just lets her go by and then turns back to the to the hill to meet Bonnie. Now, mind you, they've brought an entire tour bus of kids from Monroe High to the competition, a competition so big that it like the whole resort shuts down for the finals, and there's like no one celebrating with Cheryl except Bonnie. Uh, Rob, I think that all of Monroe High hates Cheryl as much as I do. <laughs> it, it could be um, or or they just didn't have the budget to pay those kids right yeah so uh dan ends up uh winning the men's championship bad knee and all and uh cheryl comes up and congratulates him and i think that it's the first time in the entire movie that she's said a word to dan do you remember them having any conversation before this moment no, they, they didn't, because every time Dan showed up, Greg was there and would, would either be off dancing with her or take her in a different direction. But yeah, this might be the first time they speak. I now, think you're right. Now, mind you, these are the two top skiers at their school winning a, a major competition in Park City, Utah, and they, they're not... <laughs> They don't even talk to each other. I would I would think that the top two athletes in a specific sport in a school that's going on a cross-country trip would uh, have some dialogue a time or two. But no, not here. Um, okay, so while the race is happening, the final race, Andy and Karen print a bunch of winning uh, raffle tickets with the with the number that he got from the from the homeless lady. And, and pass them out to people at the finish line. So now when the winning numbers are read, about 20 people start cheering with winning tickets. And Tolson threatens to have the kids arrested, but right on cue, uh, Channel 2 News shows up. And uh, <laughs> so Tolson promises that he's going to make good on the winning raffle tickets. And Karen says at one point, I know you have the money. Now, I did some math, Rob. <laughs> I was just about to get to the same point. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I mean, how many schools and kids do you think were at the competition? I mean, even if 10 schools, uh, each with 50 students showed up for this competition, uh, w- with raffle tickets at $2 a pop, that's a whopping $1,000. Minus the sheriff's cut, remember, because, you know... Well, you 
you got to remember he's booking four to a room. So is getting a little bit of money from that sort of scam. Okay. Um, the it sher- can't be, again, it can't be that much, though. Right, right. The sheriff's cut has to be substantial because he's risking his career for it, right? So I'm no mathematician, but uh, none of this adds up. <laughs> so, Well, especially considering the prizes. Uh, uh, what is it? A, a trip to Hawaii, a snowmobile, um, some skis and, and like ski equipment and ski outfits. Like all, all that stuff adds up really quickly. Yeah, and and the 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 only thing they were kind of rigging was the the trip to Hawaii, so he's still having mm-hmm. to give away ski equipment, the the snowmobile, all that stuff. So thousands of dollars in prizes, uh, at this measly two dollar raffle scam and and price gouging. So yeah, I it was they needed to this is this is information that they needed to this is what we needed explained to us not the conversation <laughs> between the two that hey there's you know we got the dirty sheriff here but they needed to explain more specifically how they this is a, a what what needed to be hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah in in a scam and not a thousand dollars by my math give or take yeah um okay that's it uh you know we get a little bit of falling action where you know uh oh uh, so dan and and cheryl have their moment where cheryl says you know why didn't you ever ask me out i've been waiting for you to ask me out since the fifth grade and you know dan should have kicked her to the curb and said well because you never talked to me and you're a mean person but he didn't uh they 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 kiss and they hug and then um something that i assumed was going to happen because in any other movie it would but didn't happen in this is bonnie and al i assumed were going to hook up did did you ever get that feeling like okay this is inevitable because you've got the unlucky in love bonnie and the unlucky in love al who's going around chasing women way out of his league with cheesy pickup lines and obviously, you're going to have a love connection. No, never happened. I I wasn't. Sh- I thought something was going to happen with the the two of them. Maybe not the two of them coming together, but I thought there would be some sort of resolution for each of them. I mean, that's just the trope that you know. One of those tropes where you know that girl gets a guy, and and you know Al finally gets lucky. But I wasn't sure if they were going to take the the route you say bring the two of them together or if some but i expected something to happen that uh yeah we never got and i will say that for the you know because andy and karen have their their hug and kiss scene it was like the most (laughs) awkwardly wholesome ending to this kind of movie i've ever seen they all looked wildly uncomfortable kissing and hugging each other yeah, it was just an odd scene yeah. to to be wrapping things up on for me. Yeah, it did. And then and then the final joke where uh, uh, a blonde knocks on the bus just as they're getting ready yeah. to leave and asks Al for directions, and he says, you know, hey, this is not a cheesy pickup line, but and she interrupts him and says, you know, enough with the talk. Do you want to go get lucky? And then the the bus door closes and takes off, and he can't get out to <laughs> to go with her. So. <laughs> Um, and there you go. That's it. Uh, and then cue the awesome. There is an awesome well, yeah. song at the end, snowballing, that we should have heard throughout the film. This is the song you it, needed playing instead of the Dukes of Hazard song, while Andy's going yeah. down the hill. I don't know why they. It should not have been reserved for the closing credits. It had it needed to to pop up prior to this. Um, so at least we'd have more of a connection to it because, you know, again, it's just the classic on the nose, 
I'm describing parts of the movie to you right. and you know I'm naming the movie in the song I just I loved it yeah I loved it too um, okay so let's move on from trying to figure out math and trying to piece all the love connections together awkward love connections and move on to the big question that we ask every episode Rob is snowballing worth staying up all night for <sighs> I it's it's a tough one for me because I feel like if you're looking for a teen sex comedy, this is not that at all. Um, so if you're tuning into USA Up All Night, and, and one of the reasons you're tuning in is for that, it fails in, in that department entirely. But we have certainly watched way worse movies than this. You know, I, I did like some of the characters. I did laugh at times. It is full of horrible puns, which I'm a huge fan of. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I'm left in limbo here that, uh, you know, if they're in the theme of USA Up All Night, no, it's not worth staying up all, all night for. But as, um, as a movie, it's not that bad. Okay. All right. Uh, well, you have to choose one or the other. So you can't so be So I have to stick with, I mean, why are we here? We're here to watch, you know, USA Up All Night, yep. you know, trashy sex comedies and trashy horror and all that and this just doesn't doesn't yeah. fit the bill you know, you're gonna you're gonna tune in for something and be disappointed yeah. by it yeah this movie had all the elements you need for a good teen comedy i mean the plucky kids foiling a rigged competition meant to take advantage of them but it got bogged down in so much other stuff from the ridiculous shenanigans of mr balaban that were about 60 years too late um, to all of the side plots that just never got off the ground. You know, Dan's love for Cheryl, Cheryl meeting Greg and slowly growing apart from Bonnie, you know, Al being unlucky in love. It just meanders and nothing really to me seemed cohesive about the movie. I would have liked to have seen more of a focus on the ski competition and the kids trying to uncover the rigged raffle. I mean, I think that should have been the meat of the movie. But like you said, the competition itself was just a back, just a background, you know, prop basically. Um, you know, I have to say, I really did like Andy in this film, played by P.R. Paul, yeah. who I was totally unfamiliar with. Um, yeah, if this is when I was trying to to kind of place him and get a sense of him as an actor if if Potsy and Ralph Malf had a baby it would be it would be PR Paul I mean he has Donnie yeah he has he has Donnie Most's red hair and goofiness but he has Anson Williams kind of sharper facial features um, yeah. It was kind of weird, but and he had kind of this, I don't know, this interesting, kind of unique sound that kind of reminded me a little bit of Donnie Most. Not raspy, but kind of quiet. I don't know. It was interesting, but um, yeah, kind of weird. But uh, beyond that, yeah, I'm going to say also that snowballing is, uh, it's not worth staying up all night for. So, um, but Rob, it let's see. It certainly doesn't, oops, sorry. No, I go ahead. Say it certainly doesn't, doesn't hold up to some of the other, you know, uh, you know, uh, teen sex skiing movies. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so let's see what others think about the film. Rob, what do you think the audience score was for snowballing between 0 and 100 on Rotten Tomatoes? <sighs> that's that's a tough one again because, like I said, it, it, it has some redeeming qualities, but, you know, what it's being billed as is where it fails. So so I'll give it, I'll give it 50. 
Uh, you are kinder than others. It has a, which was still surprising to me, 40% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, wow. Yeah, so let's let's look at a few of the reviews here. Super reviewer AJV gave it two and a half stars and writes, It's an okay teenage comedy about skiing and romance, but I was hoping for a teen sex romp comedy, and this did not deliver on that, despite the characters talking about it and the suggestive title. I was disappointed, but it was a complete waste. Of, but it wasn't a complete waste of time. So, I think are you really super reviewer AJV? Because uh, I'll never tell. That, that is literally um, how you describe the movie. You know, so like AJ, I was surprised too at the lack of nudity in the film. You know, we we talked about this already, but it compares itself to to Porky's. Um, it yeah. has promotional material with a very long legged woman on skis in a bikini bottom. Uh, but I think there were more hugs than kisses in the movie. Whoa, way more. And yeah. and zero nudity. And you know, I'm not saying you need nudity to be a good movie. But like like you said, for uh, for a USA Up All Night film, certainly, and for an '80s teen comedy promoted as Porky's on Skis, I definitely think this let a lot of viewers down. Well, and I think you know, even outside of that, just the the sort of even the crass factor is not there. You know, the, you know, like I said, it's rife with puns, you know, Al's sort of advances are, are horribly, but, you know, uh, tame, I guess, you know, there's, mm-hmm. I think one swear, maybe two uttered the entire yeah. movie. So yeah, for, for what it is being propped up as, yeah, it, it misses the mark in every which way possible. Um, Bill K gives it one star and writes, I thought this would be funny like Porky's or National Lampoon. This was so bad, my wife and I actually turned it off after a half hour. So not happy about <laughs> it there. And Michael W. brings up a scene that you mentioned earlier. He gives it three and a half stars and writes, High school ski trip is soured by shady resort owner who overbooks the hotel and jacks up the prices. Liked the characters enough to make this work and includes a laughable spoof of Indiana Jones' giant boulder scene. So that scene was so ridiculous, um, and it was this kind of running gag throughout the film. Balaban wanted to buy this Indiana Jones hat, and then he finally does, and he ends up buying the whole getup leather jacket complete indiana's whip he's walking around with and then later there's somebody outside the resort building this huge snowman like 15 feet high and you know he's up on a ladder trying to finish it and the the snowman breaks apart and then the, the bottom giant boulder on the bottom starts rolling after after balaban and then at one point it looks like he's lost it because he like turned down a hallway that looked like it was an interior yeah, yeah. hallway <laughs> And but then the snowball it, it rolls backwards and then starts down after him and continues after him and it was it was it was so ridiculous but it, for me it was one of the only antics of Balaban that I liked in the movie. Yes, yeah, I, I did appreciate when he came out as opposed to just buying the hat and you know had, even had the whip and tried to use it at one point. Oh, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, it just, that did make me chuckle. But it just in terms of fitting in the movie and its its purpose. You know, other than just side goofiness that, yeah, just, you know, ate into too much time that could have been used to develop these characters a little more, develop the plot a little more and, and focus things um, yeah, in, a, in, a, in a tighter manner around the actual plot. Yeah. 
All right, so it's time to put snowballing in the books. Thankfully, a forgettable teen comedy that promised to be one thing, kind of aspired to be another, and succeeded in doing none of it. Uh, Rob, <laughs> any final thoughts on snowballing? Uh, I, you know, Bonnie should have been a, a bigger piece of the puzzle. You know, I think Al should have too, uh, and that would have up to the uh, laugh factor more because certainly I, I yeah as you indicated earlier I think Bonnie was the star of the show um, she most routinely her her snide comments made me laugh the most yeah, so agreed credit Love, to her loved Bonnie from the get-go all right we'll be back next month with a new episode of still up all night and we'll leave you with possibly the only good thing besides Bonnie that came out of this film here's the movie's theme song snowballing by Tony Bellow.